I want to tell you Peter's story tonight. And I'm going to pretend like I know Peter well enough to tell it from his perspective. And, uh, you know, when I do this, of course, we, uh, the important thing is not to get caught up in all of the details so much. We're, in order to tell the story a little bit differently, sometimes we have to fill in some of those details or make an educated guess about them. But rather, uh, we want to take a look and, and see what would it, uh, what does this help us to experience in the story? How, does, how do we take something that we could maybe say as, as a fact in a sentence and show what it looks like when we struggle with it in our minds and hearts and when we try and live it out? So I'm going to see if we can pull that off tonight, uh, telling the story from Peter's perspective, the story you just heard. To be a Jew means that you have a history. You are part of something that's bigger than yourself. That's uh, part of a family that's not just your, your, your parents and your brothers and sisters and your cousins. Your family is, is a whole nation of people. And just like with any family in any country, uh, some people are easier to like and some people are harder. Just like any family or any country, some people are really successful and make the family look good by association, and other people a uh, little bit the opposite. And I hope I don't let my family down. I hope I don't let my, my parents down. They gave me so much. And I hope I don't let my my wife and my kids down by ruining the reputation my family has through a thoughtless word or a forgotten deed. But most of all, I, I want to be part of this big story. You ever want to be like that? Bigger. Bigger than you, you are or bigger than you, you have been. I want to be part of something that transforms my life, the lives of the people around me. I, see, I told you, we're a nation of a family, a family of nation, and, and, and we have a story, and that story, it really begins, I mean, it begins with Abraham, it even begins back in the garden, but, but really the moment where we started to understand who we were and what it meant to be a Jew, to be a Hebrew, to be an Israelite was our 400-year stop in Egypt. This is, we're an old family. This is over a 1,000 years ago that this happened. So long ago, we're not even really sure exactly how long ago it was. But see, my, my great, 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 I don't know how many greats, you know, my ancestors, they came out of the land that God promised to us, uh, and they lived in Egypt for a while, and, and they were important people in Egypt. Joseph, maybe you've heard his story. He was second only to Pharaoh in the whole land of Egypt. But as, as my family, as, as our people grew and got bigger and bigger, we were enslaved by the Egyptians. They were afraid of us. They were afraid of this big people group living among them that wasn't them at the same time. And we were slaves. We were slaves for 400 years. For four, I mean, think about that. 
It's, it's families who never knew freedom. Not grandpa, not baby, not anybody. Never knew freedom. Every day we went to work not for ourselves, not for the things that we loved and cared about, but for the interests of others. And my people, they cried out to our God. For 400 years, they cried out to our God. You waiting on God to answer a prayer? Anybody? I mean, I'm not going to tell you it'll be 400 years, but it could be. And we waited. And one day, God sent Moses. He should read his story. It's amazing. Set uh, floating in the Nile so he wouldn't be killed because Pharaoh was trying to trim our numbers down. Found by the princess of Egypt, raised in the palace, ran off to the wilderness and came back at God's direction and with God's power. That was a good day. 400 years and then a matter of weeks. God had done it. You know, if I were to ask some questions, probably my first question would be, if you could pull it off in a matter of weeks, why did you wait 400 years? God hasn't volunteered the answer. But that's how it happened. And, and, and it was amazing. Moses, he, he took the people out, and he, he took them out. We tell the story every year. We celebrate it at the Passover, right? Passover, when the angel of death passed over all the people of Israel while visiting all the people of Egypt. And every year when we celebrate that same meal together, when we eat the slaughtered lamb, when we eat the bread that we cook without yeast, if you had bread without yeast, it's not that delicious. But we make it because God rescued us so quickly after 400 years that there wasn't even time to wait for the bread to rise. And we tell this story, not just with the food, but with our words, with fathers asking their sons questions. And the son's responding back. This is how we know who we are. We're the people God rescued from slavery in Egypt. So fast, the bread couldn't even rise. I have to tell you, I feel like we're living in Egypt again these days. And we're not actually in Egypt, but, but in our land, we're not our own masters. We have sometimes harsh rulers, Herod, all of the Herods, taking what they want, making us pay for it. We need, we need another rescue. Happens so quickly, the bread can't even rise. And we've been talking about this for generations. We haven't ruled in our land in generations. Oh, there was a brief period. Maybe you've heard of the Maccabees. You know, they set us, they, they threw off the, the Greeks. But here, here's the problem. Uh, they weren't any better than the people they replaced. So yeah, we had Jews ruling Jews, but Jews doing a bad job ruling Jews. They weren't the right kings. They weren't the right priests. Even today, you go down to the temple. You know who the high priest is at the temple? Look for the person with the biggest, biggest bank account. That's how they get it. They bribe whoever's in power that week. 
become high priest. Let me ask you something. Do you think a guy with the most money who bribes people makes a good priest? Do you want your religious leader to be the guy who, you know, sneakily makes his way to the top (laughs) through every dirty and underhanded trick? We need a new exodus. And you know what? God promised he would send us that. Exactly that. The prophet Jeremiah. Prophet Jeremiah said, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. The great King David that God promised someone from his family would be on the throne forever. And let me tell you, he's not on the throne today. But there's a day when when God will raise up for David a new king, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And we're waiting. I hope not for 400 years. And then I met a man. Maybe you've heard of him. He's been in the ancient news, so to speak, these weeks, these last few months, and even a few years. This, this Jesus. He found me while I was at work. He said, leave your work and come follow me. You know, I know we need that new Moses. I know we need what Jeremiah promised. And I got up and I followed because I want a different life. I, I want an earth-shaking life. I started to follow Jesus. And let me tell you something. Following Jesus, not for the faint of heart. I, on days, there are some days where I feel confused, uh, guilty, frustrated, angry, and those are the good days following Jesus. But there's something about him. It's one day we were, Jesus was teaching, and and he said one of those teachings that turns you around and spins you around, and, and you don't know right from left and up from down, and what can he be talking about? And the people he was teaching, they all started to leave. We don't want anything to do with Jesus. This is too weird. It's too hard. We don't want to do it. And Jesus turned to me. I'm one of Jesus' closest disciples. There's 12 of us. And and, uh, he turned to all of us, the 12, and he said to us, do you want to leave me too? And I mean, sort of, yes, but there's nowhere else to go. If anyone knows what's happening, it's Jesus. So even if I don't like what he's about sometimes, even if I don't understand sometimes, where else can I go? He, if anyone has him, has the words of eternal life. And so here we are, following Jesus. (laughs) And one day he said to me, he said to all of us, the 12, he says, who do you say I am? Who do, or who, who do people say that I am? That's a safe question, right? Well, who do people say that I am? You, you don't have to commit to anything when you're talking about other people. So he said, well, you know, Jesus, some people say. Some people say that you're John the Baptist. Uh, some people say you're Elijah. I mean, that's pretty good, right? He's a great prophet. Some people just like, he's some sort of prophet. They don't know what to make of you, but they're pretty sure you're someone significant. I mean, there's no one who, there's no one who met Jesus 
and walked away thinking, like, here's a forgettable guy. Everyone knew he was somebody. And then, of course, Jesus wasn't satisfied with us saying what other people thought. He wanted to know what we thought. Who do you say that I am? And, and, and no one really wanted to say anything. And I know you haven't met me before, but something you should know about me is uh, my mouth uh, has a tendency to get ahead of my head. And I have a tendency to just blurt stuff out. And I, I, I blurted out. I don't know if I believe it or if I just want it to be true. I, I, it just jumped out of my mouth. You're the Christ, the Messiah. You're the one we've been waiting for. And Jesus said, Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And in his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. The new exodus, he's telling me the new exodus is on its way. He's telling me it's all about to change. And he's telling me, don't tell anyone. I mean, it's things like that that make you wonder if Jesus knows what he's doing. But Jesus wasn't done talking. He said, don't tell anyone. And he kept right on going. And and he said, after admitting he's the Christ, I have to suffer and die. And I'll rise on the third day. And everyone will hate me and reject me, and it'll be bad. You can't play with me like that, Jesus. You can't tell me in one breath, I am your Savior, and in the other hand, I'm going to die, which means you're not my Savior, right? Saviors, how do they help you from beyond the grave? It's not how this works. So I take Jesus aside. I, you know, I know he's the, the master, and I'm the disciple and all, but yeah, I dragged him. I dragged him, to, and I started telling him, Jesus, this is not what saviors do. This is not what messiahs do. Messiahs do not come to die. Uh, you know, I know you want to say something, Jesus, but you're going to listen to me for a minute. Do you remember Moses? Did he come down and did he pick up the rocks with the slaves and carry them up and build whatever Pharaoh wanted that day? Is that how Moses saved our people? No. He came and he brought 10 plagues and he plagued the snot out of those Egyptians. Like, that's an option here. You can do that too. Let's, let's get some plagues cooking up on these Romans. Or, or think about you know, your name, Jesus. It's the same as Joshua, the one who led us into the promised land. Remember, he knocked down the walls of Jericho. God helped him to do this. God's power was available to Joshua to kick the crap out of all of our enemies. And, and you're, <laughs> you're telling me you're going to die. Like, Jesus, we got to work on this. Now, I know I just got kind of loud here for a minute, and it's because I got kind of loud there for a minute. And the other 11 disciples, you know, they saw me take Jesus aside to have a private conversation that quickly was not private anymore. And Jesus understood that it wasn't just between me and him at the moment. It was between all of us. Because, you know, I I was only saying what we were all thinking. 
Like, I think that if the other disciples weren't such cowards, or maybe they're just smarter than me, I don't know, but uh, they probably would have been saying the same thing to Jesus. I think I caught a couple of them, like, nodding their heads while I was talking. That's right. You listen to Peter, Jesus. Today, he's the master. Jesus looked around, and he, he saw what was happening. And he whipped his head around, and he said, Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Whoa. It was, like, it was like he hit me. I mean, he, his words, his tone, his demeanor, like, I don't know if I've ever seen Jesus like that before. I'd seen him angry, but oh, man. And it was all focused on me. And I felt about this tall. Jesus said, you think you're so wise. Do you remember Job? Remember Job? I mean, remember what Job went through? Peter, Job's life was worse than yours. And he called out to God with better reason. And he said, God, tell me why all of this is happening this way. You remember what Job said at the, at the end of his story? He said, surely I asked about things that I couldn't understand. At the end of the day, Job acknowledged that God's ways aren't his. God's got something bigger in his plan than I could ever do. Do you remember David, Peter, said Jesus? Remember what David wrote in the Psalms? Such knowledge is too high for me too wonderful, and I can't know it. And you think you can instruct me. Peter, the problem we have here is that with all of your good intentions, you're thinking like Satan. You're thinking that battles are won by whoever has the biggest sword. And then Jesus, he turned he called the crowd back to him. I'm like, oh, no. I'm about to become an object lesson for who knows how many thousands of people. And he didn't call me out by name. Thank you, Jesus. But he said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. He must pick up his cross, and he must follow me. For whoever will, would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the sake of the gospel find it. Does that make any sense to you? Whoever wants to save his life will lose his life, but whoever loses his life will gain his life? That's like one plus one equals four, right? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way, Jesus. Jesus, he kept explaining. And here's the gist of what I got. We're used to, to living in this old world, aren't we? We know its rules. We know how you get ahead, right? There's a reason why the high priest is the richest guy in town. Because money buys power. 
there's a reason why Caesar is the most feared king that in the known world. And it's because armies crush opposition. And there's a reason why we huddle in back rooms and we talk about how do we get rid of the Romans and, and have our independence and live in our own country again under our own rules. Because we know we can't win. We just can't. Doesn't mean we're not angry enough to try anyway. But we just can't. Jesus, Jesus is talking about how we're used to living in that sort of world. We're used to trying to, to live in a world ruled by death. And so instead, we, we can't do anything about death, so we try and, and, and cheat it. We try and run away from it. We try and hide from it. But at the end of the day, death always wins. That's why Caesar is so powerful at the end of the day, because he's the best at dealing death. And Jesus said, if you're going to try and save your life by their rules, it's not going to work. Not ever. You either will become like them and die violently anyway. Or you'll die violently before you can come, become like them. But I'm offering you a different way. And I don't, I don't understand. But here's what I do know. I can't fix this. I want something earth-shattering in my life and in the lives of the people I love. But I can't stop miscarriages. I can't stop disease. I can't stop evil men. And if I keep trying to find a solution, you know, each of those maybe has their place, but if, if, I, if I try to find the final solution in running and hiding from death, I'm going to lose my life. It'll win in the end. And I don't understand how following Jesus to a cross changes that calculus. But I realized as Jesus was talking, I realized something as I listened to him. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself and pick up his cross. Sounds fun, right? Sounds awesome. Let's deny ourselves and pick up our cross. But you notice what he said next? He said, and then follow me. You know what that means? Okay. Here I am, denying myself, picking up my cross. But Jesus is in front of me. He goes first. You ever walked uh, on muddy ground? Ever walked in snow? You, you ever walked on unstable ground, on a cliffside, and you don't know which step is safe or if the ground will fall out from underneath you, or if you'll be buried up to your neck in snow, or 
or whatever other danger is there. But Jesus, he's left his footsteps behind him of the places I can go and the places I can step. He didn't say, go find your life. He said, follow me. And I can keep seeing where he's going. Keep following in that way. And it means when Jesus finally gets to the cross, when he finally dies, if that's what he means, and he's pretty worked up about it, when he finally does that, I can wait. And I can see what happens next. It's often said, this is Ian again, that the truth is stranger than fiction. How appropriate for the cross of Jesus Christ. You ever stop and think from this side, we look back and we go, well, of course he went to the cross. Like, they're hanging in all of our churches. Where else would he have gone? Clearly, that was the place. But from the other side of history, it would have made no sense at all. For truth is stranger than fiction. For this reason, because no one understood, Jesus left us this meal. The Lord's Supper is a way of understanding what Peter rebelled against, even if we can't quite take it fully in with our minds. It's a way of understanding why those crowds abandoned Jesus in John's gospel at the height of his popularity and why his disciples stayed, the 12 stayed with him anyway. The only way we can live is to lose our lives just like Jesus. And he went first so we could see how it was done. We must eat his flesh. We must drink his blood, profiting by his death on our behalf. And he offered them to us freely in this meal. All that God has asked from us to eat tonight is faith, our trust that Jesus alone is Savior, that he died for us, that all his promises, no matter how far away they may seem at times, do come true. 400 seconds or 400 years. Although our hearts and flesh may fail, God is the strength of our hearts and our portion forever.